Welcome to Gray Maybe, a limited series podcast and social experiment based on the topic of abortion. My name is Jillian Schmitz. I'm a professional dancer, actor, teacher, author, artist, and cat lover. Through my own personal journey of recovery, I found that things aren't just black or white, or a simple yes or no. For me, in my recovery, there has been mostly gray area and a lot of maybes. In most of my stories, you can find the gray maybe. I'll be sharing my own process through personal stories, interviews, and hopefully stories of others in an effort to help lessen the stigma and shame of abortion. If you'd like me to read your story on this podcast, anonymous or otherwise, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com. G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Before we get started, if you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're using to catch future episodes of Gray Maybe. A note before we begin. While the topic of abortion and my belief in it being easy and accessible to all people who can become pregnant is a comfortable topic for me, sharing my own personal stories is not. I have a justifiable amount of fear of possible hostility and violence, both in person and or online. I also anticipate the possibility of judgment ranging from my own family members to strangers, in addition to the potentiality of losing certain work opportunities for publicizing my own experiences. I'm telling my story through the lens of my own experience. The revelation of my process is mine to tell. If you disagree with me or my views or story, know that I'm not speaking on anything other than my own experiences and viewpoints. Take what you like and leave the rest. Any feelings my story activates in the listener is for the listener to process and recover from. Any criticism you have based on my experience and choices are yours, and they're not my burden to carry. Welcome back. Episode one and two of this season focused on my two contrasting abortions. I've been asking listeners to send in their own abortion stories to be read anonymously or otherwise. I have received one. When I first decided to do this podcast, I wasn't sure if anyone would write in or not. If no one did, or even if only a few people did, it would speak volumes. And, on the flip side, if I received so many stories that I didn't have time to read them all, that would speak volumes as well. I want to keep reiterating. I understand entirely why no one wants to share their stories. Perhaps we're just not there yet. The shame is too powerful, or maybe the sadness too deep. The anticipatory judgment, too great. Self-silencing serves a purpose. It keeps us safe and comfortable. But I can't help but wonder, what is the cost of our silence? What is the cost of our silence to ourselves? What is the cost of our silence to young girls and women and people who can become pregnant? Are we experiencing the cost of that silence now, politically? And why do we even need to tell our deeply personal stories, to call for empathy and destigmatization for our basic autonomy and reproductive health care? Until this project, I had forgotten how many women I knew that had had abortions. They've reached out one by one, expressing their support and gratitude, and I've responded with variations of, I'm ready for your story, should you ever be ready to tell it. As fearful as I was to share my own stories for me, that fear has been replaced with a feeling like a rebel. It still feels a little scary, but now mostly feels bold. It feels like rejecting the norm and settling into true ownership of being a disruptor, an agitator. It feels like claiming my seat at the table of the rebellion. Without much further ado, I want to introduce this episode's story written and sent by fellow rebel Alexia Knight, author of Tinderella Diary, an erotic memoir, 
and its two sequels. She was born and raised in Los Angeles, where she currently resides. Here is her abortion story. Things like these weren't supposed to happen to good girls like me. Girls with good grades. Girls who loved school and stayed involved in a slew of extracurricular activities. A girl who had just dropped off her college applications at the post office. These things were supposed to happen to troubled, stupid, or impulsive girls. Girls like my childhood friend Joy, who started hanging with the wrong crowd in 8th grade and having sex with her 11th grade gangster boyfriend just to make him like her better. Although the troublemaker boyfriend soon moved on to the next low-self-esteem middle school girl who would give it up to him, she wound up, to no one's surprise, giving birth to her first child near the beginning of our senior year. Or like my best friend, Carissa, who started smoking weed in middle school. Like Dare warned us, by high school, she slid through the gateway to hard drug use and found herself in and out of abusive relationships with criminals, drug dealers, and the like. I was neither troubled, stupid, nor impulsive. I was the good girl. I was going places. Everyone knew it, including my sweet and slightly troubled boyfriend, Aaron, who broke up with me because he was going down a bad path and couldn't bear for me to watch in judgment. But it did happen to me. It was 1995. I was 16. I met Rob, the man who would years later become my husband, mere days before I mailed off those college applications. We fell in love and soon thereafter became sexually intimate. We used condoms every time. On my 17th birthday, when we all had dinner at a local Mexican restaurant, I felt a little nauseous, which I attributed to overindulgence of my meal. A few weeks later, I realized I hadn't had a period in 50 days. I kept track. I went to save on and bought a home pregnancy test, hid in the bathroom at home, and peed on the stick. I followed the instructions. The result was undeniably positive. I got out the yellow pages and found the phone number to Planned Parenthood. I told them that I had taken a positive pregnancy test and made an appointment for a preliminary examination. I hadn't told anyone yet, not my parents, not Carissa, and not Rob. I was worried about telling Rob because I thought he would feel obligated to pay for it, and I knew he didn't have the money. Planned Parenthood told me it would cost $260 for local anesthesia and $360 for general anesthesia that would put me out completely. It was the midst of the Clinton era. Beverly Hills 90210 ruled the TV airwaves for my demographic. Condoms were being given out in the school nurse's office, and even TV's Blossom was talking about sex, baby. The reality of it hadn't hit me yet, but the practicality had. I would take the money out from my passbook savings account. I would handle it. I didn't go to school at all the entire week between finding out I was pregnant and my Planned Parenthood appointment. I was scared and shamed. I wasn't that girl. But at this moment, I was. I didn't tell anyone anything. I kept my secret to myself. On the day of the appointment, I spent two hours alone in the waiting room. Finally, they called me in, gave me a pregnancy test, and told me I was eight and a half weeks pregnant. They told me the due date. They didn't ask me a lot of questions, but I had filled out a form where it asked me some medical history questions. I lied about my age, saying I was 18 instead of 17, even though in California, parental consent was not required. The forms asked me what I would want to do in the event of a positive pregnancy test. I had checked the box for abortion, pregnancy termination. I knew what the other options were. There was no question for me. 
I wanted to have a future. I wanted Rob to have a future. We were not ready to raise a child. I wasn't even ready to tell my parents I was pregnant. They told me I needed to take a blood test. I can't remember why. And that it would cost $8. So I left to go to the ATM and grab some cash. I was running around full of adrenaline. I returned and she, Edith, took my blood. My face turned green and I felt lightheaded. I was alone. Just me and Edith. She gave me a fun-sized baby Ruth. How appropriate. That she thought would bring my blood sugar back up. But I soon wound up throwing up in the trash can. Maybe it's because you're pregnant, she said. Once I felt better, she made me an appointment for Friday to have the abortion. I wasn't feeling well after my appointment, but still had a few hours until school got out. I wanted to go to Rob's to lay down for a while, but he wasn't home. I went to Chris's house and waited for her. When she got home, I confessed to her about my predicament. She didn't quite believe me at first. And then when we met up with Rob later, she sat with me while I told him. He was, for lack of a better word, gobsmacked. But he said he would support me no matter what. Unfortunately, no matter what did not include finances. So I ditched school for the rest of the week and pulled money out of my savings account that I had been dumping birthday money into since I was a baby. My college fund. On the morning of the procedure, my mom was leaving for a weekend Vegas trip with her sister, and my dad was watching me. His day-to-day schedule was extremely predictable, so I would be able to work around him. I ditched school and picked up Chris and Rob, who would also be ditching school and accompanying me to my appointment. I needed a licensed driver to drive my car home afterwards, and that was Rob. When I got to my appointment, I noticed all sorts of women in the waiting room. I thought the room would be full of teenagers. I particularly noticed a woman who appeared to be in her 30s or 40s with a man. She looked sullen, and he looked indifferent. I filled out a ton of paperwork, and I was called to pee in a cup. I waited about an hour in the waiting room with Chris and Rob, and then I played musical rooms for another hour. I changed into the stupid backless robe. They gave me a muscle relaxer pill that I couldn't swallow, so they gave me some apple juice and I chewed it up, tasting the bitterness mixed with the dull sweetness of the juice. The doctor, an African-American female, and two nurses, both Latina, sucked the life out of me while they talked about what curtains in the kitchen would match the new tile. They were trying to distract me while I stared at the holes in the ceiling, looking for patterns. I had never even had a pelvic exam before. The procedure was over quickly, and it didn't hurt, but as soon as they took the metal apparatus out of me, I cried. Tears of relief, I think. They asked me if I was in pain. I was not. I was not terribly upset. They said it was likely the hormones, or maybe the medications. They took me to a room called the recovery room, which consisted of three reclining chairs facing the same direction. I saw some of the same people I remembered from the waiting room, including the older woman. She was sobbing and looking miserable. I was feeling fine. I was sitting on a huge pad. They gave me crackers and apple juice. I had practically no cramping, but I felt alone. I wanted Rob. I was clutching the paper chain he gave me that I was wearing as a bracelet. Hey, it was the mid-90s. They soon let me get dressed, and I went out to the waiting room, and Rob drove us home. I went home and went to sleep. It was 4.30 p.m. My dad was not home. He would be home around 7.30 p.m. I didn't wake up until the next morning. My life quickly went back to normal. I stopped bleeding rather quickly. I resumed my normal social life the following morning with not so much of a discussion about the day before. I went back to school on Monday and made up some crazy excuse about why I had missed two weeks of school. My grades weren't badly affected, 
there was an attendance policy that was supposed to bar me from going to the prom or walking the stage at graduation. But since I was a good girl, they swept it under the rug and I suffered no consequences. Rob and I went to the prom together. I went away to college only a few hours away. The first year, I lived in a dorm, and the rest of the years, we lived together in a one-bedroom apartment. After I graduated, we moved back to L.A. and joined the working world. We eventually got married, and 15 years later, we welcomed our wanted, planned, and perfect child into the world. On our terms, when we were ready, when we could afford it, when we could give our child the best chance possible to thrive. We have no regrets. About a year later, I was still breastfeeding and had just had an IUD removed because I thought it was giving me headaches. I was trying to decide what my next move would be for birth control. Something was going on. I knew the symptoms. When I was pregnant with my child, I had very similar symptoms to when I was a pregnant teen. The distinctive smell of my urine, the low-grade nausea, even the weight loss. I knew I was pregnant before I even got the results back from the 99-cent store pregnancy test. We discussed it. Could we have another baby? Did we want another child? The clincher was the fact that after I gave birth, I had massive complications that almost killed me. The childbirth experience left both of us with PTSD. He remembered sitting in the waiting room after I was undergoing emergency postnatal surgery, thinking I wasn't going to make it, and that he was going to have to raise our child alone. I remember seeing tears streaming down my parents' face when I came into the intensive care unit. They thought they were going to lose their baby. That feeling was so much more impactful than how I felt after my teenage abortion. Everyone thought I was going to die, but I pulled through. There was no way I was going to risk leaving my husband alone to raise my son without a mother. If something should happen to me, I couldn't do it. This time, I was insured through Kaiser, so I called them and told them I was pregnant, and they referred me to a clinic in the area that would perform an abortion. The cost, 20 bucks. This time, I had the option of taking the abortion pill, but I was unsure, so I chose to go ahead with another surgical abortion. However, this time, I would be put under. This time, I was in a different building, but the same musical rooms, the same backless gowns, and the same sad-looking woman and feckless-looking men. In a complete role reversal, I remember seeing a 16-year-old girl crying in the waiting room. Inconsolable. A dumb-looking teenage boy and her mother accompanied her. This time, I was the older woman. I wanted to tell her, you're going to be okay. You're going to get through this. It's not going to hurt too much. Everything's going to be fine. But I kept my mouth shut. I remember being sat on a bed in a very large operating room, wondering how long it would take me to be out cold. And then I was awake and no longer pregnant. I have never in my life felt such a relaxing state as I did when I woke up from that general anesthesia after having my second abortion in my mid-30s. I felt like I had just woke up from the most amazing nap. Disoriented, but at peace. I recovered quickly. I was okay. But I was never doing this again. Rob made an appointment to get a vasectomy and drove me home. Once his testicles were no longer bearing fruit, for the first time in my life, I was keenly aware of my fertility. For once, he couldn't make a baby, but I still could. It was just a thought, a fleeting thought, but it held weight. I'm not sure why. Five years later, something in me had changed completely. I became tired of having sex with the same old person, the same body, since I was 16. I grew restless, unsatisfied, and bitter towards Rob. 
The events leading up to my infidelity are well documented in my book, Tinderella Diary. I had this compulsion that had built up slowly over decades, and then one day I snapped. I joined Tinder and started fucking around with whomever I could get my hands on. I was making up for lost time. I was creating many new notches on my belt. I felt like I was connecting with my true self. I felt like I was living life. I was not just a mother and a wife. I was me. I was a sex kitten, and I was enjoying the hell out of myself. One day, I was at a routine pap smear appointment at the very same clinic I was where I had my last abortion, when the nurse practitioner sat me down and informed me that I was five weeks pregnant. This time, I was gobsmacked. I couldn't even narrow down who the father was or what the race of the fetus might be. The first time I was pregnant, I only told Carissa and Rob. The second time I was pregnant, I only told Rob. This time, I didn't dare tell Rob. During my appointment, I happened to be fielding texts from one of my regular partners, Edward. So I confessed to him. I'm pregnant. Do you know who the father might be? He asked. No, I replied, but then added, it could be you. Yeah, he responded. Then he added, I'm here for you. Like Rob in the 90s, Edward was in no position to help me but it was very sweet that someone who was just one of the pack was showing me such kindness and compassion. He was the only person I told. This time, I chose to take the abortion pill. They explained how it would work, and it seemed like this would be a lot easier than worrying about anesthesia and rides home and what bullshit excuse I would give to Rob when I got home. I would have to wait two weeks for the medicinal abortion just to make sure the pregnancy was not ectopic. I even had sex with Edward and others during this short pregnancy. Edward offered to come with me to my appointment. I thanked him, but told him it was not necessary. They gave me a pill in the office, mifeprestone, to dislodge the fetus, and another one, misoprostol, to take at home the next night to initiate the expulsion of the tissue from my body. They also prescribed me antibiotics and painkillers. When I left the clinic after taking the first pill, I went on with my life and my job as normal. The next night, when I took the second pill, I had very light cramps and went to sleep. I had told Rob I had started my period, and to me, that's what it felt like. The bleeding was relatively light and didn't last very long. I didn't even take the painkillers. And when I went to my follow-up appointment two weeks later, the nurse practitioner marveled at how minimal my symptoms were and how easily my body recovered. I was now 40. I didn't even think I could get pregnant anymore, I joked to the nurse. What I really think of most is how much we as humans don't talk about abortion. I think most of the guilt and shame and negative emotions surrounding terminating an unwanted pregnancy come from society, and this idea that abortion is murder. This catchphrase oversimplifies the problem and places the blame solely on women's shoulders. Another thing I think about, especially with the medicinal method of pregnancy termination, is how easy it was. There was no baby ripped from me, no tiny skull being crushed. Yes, an ultrasound was performed, but it was for my safety and not to guilt trip me. There was no more blood and tissue expelled than a typical menstrual period. I feel empathy for those who try to conceive and can't, or people who have experienced miscarriages. But their problems are not my problems, and my problems don't negate theirs. Every woman should have the right to plan her own family. I also feel some sadness for men who want a child, and a woman's freedom of choice infringes with that. That's a valid concern but a much smaller problem than forcing women to bear children and or the consequences. This brings me to another point and another catchphrase, my body, my choice. While I believe that this is fundamentally true, 
I feel like this slogan is divisive and unfairly places all the burden on the woman. It pits men against women and makes men feel powerless. And when men feel powerless, they do more to exert control over women. We need to stop framing abortion as a woman problem. It's a society problem. We need to stop framing abortion as a political and legislative problem. It's a personal and medical problem. We need to stop criminalizing abortion and instead do more to prevent unwanted pregnancies by giving young people truthful and accurate information about sex and birth control. We need to have honest conversations about consent and rape. We need to tell the truth about abortions, what happens to the body, what it feels like, etc. Men want abortions just as much as women. Women love babies. Remember, we're caregivers. Men are the ones who panic and force their mistresses to have abortions and then murder them when they don't. These are, of course, sensationalist generalizations, but so is the idea that abortions can be prevented by a woman just keeping her legs closed, or that a suitable consequence for an irresponsible pregnant teenager is to raise a child. How about an attitude shift? Abortion is not murder. It's compassion. It allows people going through difficult things and making tough choices to have their lives back. Restricting abortion is a life sentence. Abortion is rehabilitation. Abortion is clemency. Abortion is forgiveness. Abortion is sacrifice. Abortion gives a woman a second chance, or in my case, a third, fourth, or fifth. There's one thing in particular I couldn't stop thinking about all week in Alexia's story. It's a detail that I think needs to be highlighted. When she wrote that she pulled money out of her savings account that she had been dumping birthday money into since she was a baby, her college fund. It might seem like an odd thing to fixate on at first, except if you think about it, in 1995, $260 would be roughly $506 today. Her other option of $360 in 1995 would be around $700 today. According to the Guttmacher Institute, more than half of women who get abortions spend the equivalent of more than one-third of their monthly income on the procedure and the associated costs. A full year's worth of birth control pills, on average, is equivalent to 51 hours of work for someone making the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. One of the most effective birth control methods, the IUD, upfront costs are nearly a month's salary for a woman working full-time at minimum wage. Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health student Lena Nitin Kulkarni, MPH 2019, writes, Over the course of her adult life, a woman could spend an estimated $15,000 on pap smears, HPV tests, birth control, and feminine hygiene products. She also calculated the out-of-pocket costs for pregnancy care and childbirth and how her wages and benefits might have been impacted if she had a child on her former salary as a teacher. The price tag added up to $154,643, the price of a Porsche, or four years of college tuition. The Peterson KFF Health System Tracker states, Health spending during a woman's reproductive years is twice that of men the difference often being the enormous maternity care costs of pregnancy and delivery. 
according to health affairs in 2015, average, average being the optimal word here, the average out-of-pocket spending for women with employer-based insurance was around $4,500. The Affordable Care Act did expand coverage and reduced many out-of-pocket costs, and it barred discrimination in health coverage and higher premiums based on gender. However, women of color are still more likely to be uninsured than women overall. Women who have abortions are disproportionately poor. Over 42% are from families with income below the federal poverty line, and an additional 26% from families earning less than 200% of the poverty line. Women denied abortion were worse off financially one year later than women who terminated a pregnancy. Government-imposed restrictions and obstacles to reproductive health care increases the cost of this care. Many women still face barriers to affordable and accessible birth control. Some employers want to eliminate insurance coverage of birth control due to religious beliefs. Lower-income women in 19 states do not have broad birth control coverage because their state refuses to expand Medicaid, and in seven of those states, they have no birth control coverage at all due to no family planning program. Title X, a program that provides services, including birth control, to low-income, underinsured, and uninsured individuals, has been constantly underfunding attack, making it impossible to carry out the program's mission. All the barriers I just mentioned don't even include when clinics run out of birth control, have other supply issues, or women who cannot obtain appointments due to their work schedules or are unable to get to a clinic. An article featured on AmericanProgress.org reports that not only do women still earn less than men, but that they pay more for products and services. Studies documenting gender-based pricing, a.k.a. the pink tax. Basically, markups on items and services included but not limited to women's razor blades and haircuts. There are currently 27 states that classify medically necessary menstrual products as luxury items, which carry comparable taxes. It may be debated if women are targeted more by predatory lenders facing higher interest rates on things like cars or houses, but the data doesn't lie. The American Association of University Women found that on average, women's student debt was $1,500 more than men's after completing a bachelor's degree, with black women taking on more debt on average than any other group. The lack of care continues to harm women disproportionately, as women are the majority of unpaid caregivers in their families, and also represent 90% of paid caregivers. For example, the cost of childcare equals nearly one-third of the average woman's income. This forces many out of the workforce during a woman's prime working years, in much larger numbers than men. And at the very same time, one-fourth of early childcare providers need multiple jobs to make ends meet. Lack of family and medical leave programs in the United States only aggravate the situation. In an average year, women in America cumulatively lose over $7 billion because of unpaid or partially paid parental leave, or over $2 billion because of unpaid or partially paid caregiving leave. In addition to the physical burden of Alexia's circumstance, the financial burden also fell on her. That money she had diligently put away for her future she had to use to have the future she dreamed of. Hundreds of dollars she could have spent towards her education. Hundreds of dollars she could have invested. Hundreds of dollars Rob didn't have to find or take out of his future to help secure his dreams. 
Alexia missed weeks of school, which luckily didn't have any lasting consequences. Had she been a little older with a full-time job? I wonder what the extra ramifications financially or otherwise would have been. I just had such a hard time shaking the image of a 16-year-old girl, handing over her hard-earned savings, taking such an early financial hit for being female. I'm just so blown away by Alexia's boldness to tell her story unabashedly and hear her personal insights. The similarities I related to in parts of her story pull at my heartstrings and also makes me personally feel less alone and less ashamed. I hope listeners reach out and share their support and encouragement with Alexia, like so many of you have shared with me. She welcomes responses from listeners, quote, even if the feedback is not positive, she's braver than me. You can find her on Instagram at Tinderella Diary, T-I-N-D-E-R-E-L-L-A-D-I-A-R-Y, or on Twitter at Tinderella underscore five times, T-I-N-D-E-R-E-L-L-A underscore five times. I'll add Alexia's socials in the show notes. If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you were able to find something relatable in today's episode. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, this is also a social experiment to see if in telling my story and the stories of others, I can embolden listeners to share their stories. If you'd like me to read your abortion story, anonymous or otherwise, on this podcast, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com. G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Reminder, there is a very important election coming up November 8th, 2022. Please have a voting plan. Know the rules and regulations of your state and vote like your freedom depends on it. Because now, more than ever, it does. For more information on voting in your state, go to vote.org. Thank you to everyone who helped make this Gray Maybe podcast happen. Producer and editor Roderick Barge. Cover photo by Jose Perez. Music licensed by Pixabay. Special counsel Jada Ellingham and Roderick Barge. Special shout out to supporter Patty Olgain. If you'd like to support this podcast, please rate, share, comment, and subscribe. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>